And here we are at church number three in the not-so-magnificent seven. The church at Pergamum. For those who are here for the first time or haven't caught up, we're going through the seven churches that uh, uh, Jesus speaks to at the start of the book of Revelation. We started with Ephesus, the church that had left its first love. We then moved on to... Thank you, Smyrna. <laughs> Smyrna. Sorry, I sound like Sean Connery. <laughs> Smyrna. <laughs> and this was the church that was persecuted. And here we are at church number three, the church in Pergamum. And I think this one gets a lot of interest directed towards it. Largely because of one particular description of the city involved here. It is described as the place where Satan's throne is. The place where Satan dwells. Now that's some pretty vivid stuff, isn't it? In fact, there's a lot of things you look into when you, when you, when you look at Pergamum. There's loads of stuff about that. Which is kind of a shame. Because that bit's not the point of the letter. So today we'll dig into what that means, but then we'll spend more time focusing on what the letter's really about. We will look at how this church is commended, and we will look at how this church was going wrong, and what that means for us today. But let's start by digging into what Jesus says to the church in Pergamum. Revelation 2, verses 2 to 17. Before we do that, I'm just going to swallow the throat sweet that is in my mouth, because it's in the way. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone 
with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. There is a lot to dig into in this passage. But let's just start with some very basic background. What and where is Pergamum? But before we do that, let's start with the way we say it. Some say Pergamum, some say Pergamos. Why? Well, it's very simple. The older translations of the Bible say Pergamos, which is the feminine form of the word. Newer translations use the neutral form of the word Pergamon. And at the time, it was known by both. So both translations of the Bible are right. <laughs> there we go. It's that simple. Both Pergamon was more common, so the newer translations are probably a little bit more right. If that makes sense. <laughs> but essentially, it does not matter. I'm going to say Pergamon because I'm using a newer translation. As it sits today, it sits in ruins above the city of Bergama in Turkey. And unlike Ephesus and Smyrna, this city was not one of the big trade cities. It wasn't on a big trade route. But it was still in competition to be one of the greatest cities in the area. It was actually more famous than both of those other cities. It wasn't a trade city. It was a cultural city and a religious center. It was famous for its library, which contains no fewer than 200,000 parchment rolls. I can't picture what 200,000 parchment rolls look like, but it's big. It was second in the world only to the famous library of, of Alexandria. And it's actually, just in case you're interested, where we get the word parchment from. Parchment comes from the word Pergamum scroll. So parchment is kind of famous with being connected with this place. That interests me. It might not interest you at all. And this uh, Pergamum was one of the big religious centers in the empire. It had particularly two famous shrines in it. And we'll get to those in a bit. This is a city where it was hard to be a Christian. We know that there were those in this city who were killed for their faith. But even in the face of that, they were a church that did not deny Jesus. Even to the point of death. What the Ephesus, sorry, Smyrna was encouraged to be like last week they were like. So they were getting some stuff right. However, it was a church that found itself extremely compromised by the culture that it lived in. I wonder if that sounds familiar at all. And whilst it didn't deny Jesus, it allowed bad teaching and the evil culture around it to creep in. It became a situation where there wasn't enough of the church in the culture. But there was too much of the culture 
in the church. So what is Jesus saying to this church? Well, let's go through it piece by piece. Um, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. As we've seen in previous weeks, the way Jesus introduces himself to the church has bearing, and we'll come back in a moment. But here Jesus is described as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. The double-edged sword, of course, would be a reference to the gladius, which we have a picture of here. The Roman two-edged sword. In the imagery that Paul uses when Paul's talking about the armour of God, he uses this exact same sword to mean the Word of God, the Bible. It could be a similar use here, but it doesn't have to be. Sometimes we think if Paul has called the Word the sword, every time anybody else mentions a sword, it's the Word. Well, Paul's allowed to use his own metaphors, and everybody else is allowed to use their own as well. So it doesn't have to be. That said, I think in this case it is, but we'll come back to that. Different writers can use the same imagery to mean different things. So be very careful when you go book to book, and different writers, the same thing doesn't necessarily follow there. Actually, here's an interesting thing, just in, again, I find it interesting. The Roman governor had something called Jus Gladii, which was called the right of the sword. The Roman governor, in other words, had the power of life and death. And at any moment, he could use the right of the sword against anyone he chose to. He could use the right of the sword against Christians. And we see that did happen here. So by saying Jesus is the one who has the sword, the double-edged sword, it's also reminding us the real person who holds the power of life and death. The one who has the real right of the sword is Jesus. The Roman governor had power in this world, but the power Jesus has is so much more. And we need to remember that. This world might seem powerful. This world might seem intense. This world might seem like it has the power over life and death, but it's nothing compared to the power of Jesus. Jesus then continues by saying, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Okay. Now we are getting lost in the woods here. We need to be very careful. Because I know when we read it, this is the bit we find interesting. This is the bit where we go, hmm, I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is. This part isn't part of criticism of the church. They're actually being commended here. They're living in a very dangerous, evil culture. And they are commended for not denying in a place Jesus in a place that demands they deny Jesus. 
They were in the middle of a place so bad, Jesus describes it as the place where Satan's throne is. He says, well done for being strong in this evil culture. You know, when we stand against the culture, when we stand against the evil all around us in the world, remember Jesus sees it. Jesus sees it and Jesus commends it. Even for them in this place where the rule of Satan is the strongest. Even death didn't cause them to flinch. We know nothing about Antipas. Other than he was killed for his faith. And Jesus says he was a faithful witness. You know what? If you were going to be remembered by anything. That's a pretty good way to be remembered isn't it? Now we get very negative about this church in Pergamon. And we will do that in a moment. But remember they stood firm during an opposition we've never faced the like of. And Jesus commends them for doing it. Okay, now we can get... I'm very aware we can get lost in this bit if we're not careful. Satan's throne. The place where Satan dwells. What on earth is this. Well, there's a couple of possibilities. Pergamum saw itself as the guardian of Greek worship. In 240 BC, after a big victory, there was a great altar to Zeus built here. 40 feet high, it stood on the hill and looked a bit like a giant throne. Around it was intricate carvings which showed the Greek gods defeating the giants of the barbarians. And it has been suggested that this is what was meant by Satan's throne. And the fact that it looks a bit like a throne, well, kind of. It doesn't look like a very comfortable throne. I mean, I, I get it's a little bit, but it's not much. Would mean that this imagery was probably more relevant to the church when they heard it. Here's the problem with the altar of Zeus being the throne. Zeus wasn't really a threat to the church. By this time, Zeus wasn't a big deal. He was kind of old-fashioned. The time of the Greek gods had passed. Caesar worship was the big thing at this point. Greek god worship, it was kind of like a bit of a remnant. It was well regarded, but kind of like, you know, it's a historical building that we have. This might be a strange analogy, but it's a bit like Blockbuster Video. You know, Blockbuster Video was huge, but now it's kind of a bit of a distant memory. That's the Blockbuster Video in the town centre. And that shop is still there. This photograph was taken in 2021, and it has been empty for how long now? I mean, that's not a great sign about the town centre, but you can still go visit Blockbuster Video in the town centre, even though nobody goes there anymore and it doesn't exist as a company. Zeus was about as relevant at this point as Blockbuster Video. But people have latched on to the idea of this altar being the throne of Satan for years. It is now in Berlin. 
And for the Nazis, this was seen as a cultic object that they attempted to appropriate the message of in the carvings. They saw this, the carvings being about good over evil, gods over barbarians, and they obviously took that to be the Aryans over everybody else. It's possible Hitler saw huge occult significance in this throne. That's why he had it brought to Berlin. That's why he modeled the palace, well, the place where he had the rallies in Nuremberg after it. So Hitler thought it was significant. But guess what? Hitler was wrong about some stuff. <laughs> I, I, I dare say we would disagree with Hitler on one or two things. <laughs> yes? So let's not assume Hitler's right about this. But it's led to all kinds of conspiracy theories that this altar is the center of all evil in the world. Like that's how it works. This has been used by things like QAnon to really spread some weird stuff. We've made a lot of this altar, but I, to be honest with you, I don't see Jesus referring to this altar as a threat to the church at all. It just isn't. If you had to pick a temple in Pergamum, which was a threat, I guess a more likely candidate is the one at the other end of the city. Pergamum was connected to the worship of a god called, and I'm going to say this wrong, but Paul's not here, so I don't mind, Asepios, who was a god of healing. And I'm getting some musical accompaniment. His temples were actually the closest thing you would find to a hospital back then. Uh, that's the remains of the temple to Asepios. Now here's the interesting thing about Asepios. He was known as Asepios the Saviour. Now that's a title that belongs to Jesus. There's only one Saviour. And one can imagine how abhorrent that title was to the church. But also how the church in that city can be persecuted for calling Jesus our saviour. Another interesting thing about Asepios was his emblem, his symbol, was the serpent. It was a serpent coiled around a rod. And this was this God's symbol. It's actually still used today by the Royal Medical Corps. And you can see in there, it almost seems like a, like a satanic mockery of the serpent Moses lifted up in the wilderness. So you look at that and you go, huh, maybe that's it. Maybe. But here's the problem with Asepios. He wasn't a threat to the church either. People who went to that temple weren't gonna persecute you the people who went to that temple were sick <laughs> they were ill they were people you pitied they weren't a threat so I'm unsure either of these sources either of these temples are the source of the throne of Satan I don't think it's either of them a more likely possibility 
was that this was the place that became the center of worshipping Caesar. And we already know that throughout the Roman Empire, the worship of Caesar resulted in the death of a lot of Christians. Christians who refused to say, Caesar is Lord, but instead said, Jesus Christ is Lord. When you said Jesus Christ is Lord, not Caesar is Lord, you were going against the entire Roman Empire. I think that's the biggest reason why this is the place that's described as Satan's seat. It was the place where men were required upon pain of death to take the name of the Lord and give it to Caesar. And to a Christian, there is nothing more satanic than taking the name of the Lord and giving it to somebody else. Now, with that one, it does bring up an actual que a question. But that isn't a physical thing. What's the throne? What's the physical throne? But isn't that strange? We, got, we, we try and cling, okay, if that's the reason he called this the place where Satan's throne is, where's the throne? What is it? Last week we talked about the synagogue of Satan and we never ask, where was that synagogue? We, we, we looked at that as being a description of a situation, not a building. So why do we do it differently here? A few lines further down. Using the imagery of the throne of Zeus might work as a metaphor, but actually looking for a physical throne of Satan to me, it just seems like we've took the wrong turn in a weird maze. It's amazing how into this people get. Oh, it's the throne of Satan. People go to that. Wherever that city, wherever that is now, that is the city where Satan reigns. I know this is less exciting, but I think the real answer is there was no physical throne. It was because this was the place where you were required to say Caesar is Lord. And, you know, when I started this message off, I was hoping to get into some really exciting stuff with the throne of Satan. I was hoping we'd hit some stuff that was a bit more controversial. And I ended up going, I can't justify that. I can't. It doesn't actually make sense. I really actually feel the whole Satan's throne... Thing in this passage is a distraction that we've allowed in and I know I've spent a fair bit of time on this but there's some weird ideas out there that needs tackling you google Pergamum you google the throne of Satan you will find some weird things and I think it's good that we just tackle that first the point is this city was full of idolatry. This city was full of wickedness. This city demanded worship to those who are not God. And the church is commended for standing up against it, whatever it was. That's the point. And we get so lost in that bit, we never focus on this next bit. But I have a few things against you. 
you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The church did a great job against standing up against evil. But it fell for false teaching in a huge way. And there's two main areas of false teaching that it fell for, fell for that's described here. The teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So a better question to ask when reading this passage is not what is the throne of Satan, but what are these teachings? And I wonder if we can see these teachings anywhere today. The Nicolaitans and the teachings of Balaam actually were kind of intertwined with each other. In fact, when you really get into what they were teaching, it's kind of the same thing. And this isn't the first time the Nicolaitans were mentioned in these letters. In the letter to Ephesus, that church is commended for standing up against the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We never covered it because it's really more relevant here. Because the church in Pergamum gave in to that teaching. So what are the Nicolaitans? Well, some believe it was a sect started by a guy called Nicholas, one of the early deacons in the church, and that he turned away from truth and became a heretic. But you know why they think it was Nicholas? Because his name sounds similar. That's it. That is it. There's no other evidence that Nicholas, one of the early deacons of the church, turned into a heretic other than his name sounds similar. So can we just write that one off? Mm -mm. Um, sometimes, I tell you, we, we, we make some very strange connections. What's more likely is that this comes from an Aramaic word, Nicola, which means let us eat. That became the Greek word Nicolaitans. Now let us eat is a much better one because it fits with their teaching. Because their teaching focused mainly on two main areas. Eating food sacrificed to idols and practicing sexual immorality. They didn't just teach, these two things aren't a big deal. No, 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 they taught, go for it, do it. Isn't it strange that the two things that James said in Acts, the Gentile believers shouldn't do, these guys start teaching, you should do. The two things out of the whole law that James, the leader of the church, said, those are the lines we don't cross. The Nicolaitans start saying, that line doesn't exist. That's the very things that are under attack by the Nicolaitans. Is that coincidence? No. They would live lives of overindulgence, abandoning themselves to pleasure and perverted grace. 
They changed liberty for license to do whatever you want. They abused the grace of God to do whatever they wanted to do. And then they found ways to theologically justify it and encourage it. I wonder, does that sound familiar? When people rebel against God, they have to come up with a theology that justifies it and allows it. So they start teaching it. This was a church where holiness and separation from the world was gone. The idea that they were different to the world around them, gone. They proclaimed Christ as Lord, well done. But they lived like he wasn't. See, this doctrine of Balaam was devious. Balaam was a prophet who tried to use God's gifts for profit. I know those words sound the same, but they're different. <laughs> he tried selling his prophetic gifts to Balak, who was the enemy of God's people. He tried cursing Israel, and God kept turning the curse around into a blessing. And Balaam realized a frontal assault is not going to get the job done. So instead, let's be sneaky. Instead, he tried to weaken Israel's moral resolve. He used Moabite and Midianite women to tempt the Israelites into sexual rituals and pagan rituals. That's exactly what was going on in this church. Sexual immorality and eating food offered to idols, engaging actively in the pagan culture around them. You know, we see this happening time and time again in the New Testament. In 2 Peter uh, 2.15, Peter says, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. This is not the only time they crop up. Peter says the people who were getting you into it, they've tricked you. They've tricked you. They had financial reasons to trick you. You know, if you can be convinced, ooh, we're going to get into trouble here. If you can be convinced that giving money to the church is going to make sure that you're blessed and you get money, well, I can trick you into that. And guess what? It'll work for me. Yes? That's engaging in the materialistic pagan culture of this world, the idol of money. Tell you what, the idol of money has ruined some churches. Peter says, they're tricking you, and they're gaining from it. They were making a name for themselves from money. False teachers still do that today. Balaam used his gift for financial gain. Jude speaks about them as well. So what is this teaching? What was the church falling for? Essentially, compromise. Just being like the world. Caring about the things the world cares about. 
They were forgetting. They were called as a church to be holy and separate. And they were given into the ways of the world. You know, following Jesus isn't just a thing we do. We put our hands up, hallelujah, I'm saved, nothing else happens. Following Jesus is an invitation to live a life of holiness. A life that's different from the world around us. They were a church that was no different to the pagan culture that surrounded them other than where they spent a few hours on a Sunday. I wonder, church, that's a question for us. Other than the fact that we spend a few hours here on a Sunday, how different are you to the world around you? How different are your ambitions? How different are your dreams? How different is your moral standing? Because it should be different. Are we really different from the world that we live in? Because that's what holiness should look like. Balaam compromised Israel by seduction and greed. And Satan has been doing the same thing to the church since it began. How many have fallen throughout history in churches due to sexual immorality or materialism, the idol of this world today? How often has sexual immorality just been disregarded as unimportant? It doesn't matter. See, what we see in the church across the world today on this issue, it's not really anything new. It's come up time and again. How often has the church been compromised throughout history for the sake of popularity, money, Sexual gratification or personal gain. How often has grace become an excuse to do whatever you want to do? The temptation to give in to sexual sin, to fall for idolatry and then just brush it under the carpet to pretend it's not an issue has been a problem since the church began. We see it right throughout the New Testament. So these following words of Jesus stands not just to the church in Pergamum, but to our church in the world today. And the words of Jesus are this, Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Church, where we have compromised, we must repent. We must turn around. I wonder this morning, and I can't speak for you, you can only speak for you, how much of this world has invaded your life? How much have you compromised? How much of the culture around you has been let in? As, it's no big deal. church we have to be different in more ways than where we just spend some of our time on a Sunday we can't hold to the same value system as this world 
and where we have in areas of our life where we have guys we need to repent we need to repent and repent isn't saying sorry God repent is turning around where there's been a lack of holiness in our lives that needs to be replaced with holiness our call is to be different holy where there's been compromise there needs to be a turning away from the compromise where there's been sexual immorality there needs to be repentance and replace it with purity where there's been idolatry and when I say idolatry I don't mean you've been hanging around a mosque too long I mean anything that takes the place of God in your life anything that you get your comfort from instead of God anything that becomes the thing you value more than God that's idolatry anything we put before God is idolatry Facebook for some people become become an idol because if you're relying on a like to feel good it's becoming an idol yes that's not to say it is for everybody don't get me wrong I'm saying anything, anything that puts, we put our values in more than God. Anything that makes us feel good and we need, not anything that makes us feel good, you know what I mean. Anything that we take our values from instead of God is an idol. Where there's been idolatry, there needs to be repentance and the turning back to seeking after God. And I'm just using Facebook as an example. There's millions of things. And I'm sure we can all think of some. And I'm sure we can all think of some in our lives. Where sin has been allowed, it needs to be removed. Because Jesus said if there's, if there's no repentance, he would come and war against them. He'd war against this false teaching. He'd destroy it all with the sword from his mouth. Like the Roman governor, Jesus has the right of the sword. He has the right to destroy and come against everything that's corrupt and everything that's wrong. The sword from his mouth clearly is the word of God. And every objection... Every false teaching, every incorrect way cannot stand in the light of the word of God. Let me tell you, if you're wondering if there's something that's taken over your life too much, if you're wondering if there's something that's become an idol, test it, compare it to the word of God. And it won't stand. It won't stand. This is a message to the compromised church. You must repent. The message to the compromised Christian, you must repent. You must turn around because in the light of the word, we've got no defense. You know when you're reading the Bible and you read something and you're like, oh God, I'm getting that wrong. 
We can't brush that off. That's God telling us to sort it out. Because all of the things that we hold to that we're so sure about can't stand in the word. We must turn around because the light of the word shines and we've got no defense against it. Jesus ends this by saying, he who has an ear, let him hear. Have you got any ears here this morning? Then hear this. (laughs) What the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Huh? What? Eh? Hidden manna and a white stone. Huh? Again, sometimes we read too much into this bit. The hidden manna is obviously the bread of life. We know Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life. It's a similar promise to last week to the one who overcomes, the one who conquers. They have access to the bread of life. They have access to the eternal life in the kingdom of Jesus. The eternal life that only Jesus can offer. Let me tell you, only Jesus, only Jesus is the source of eternal life. Without it, without him, it does not exist. He is the bread of life. He made himself that connection between the manna of Moses and his own self. John 6 verses 48 to 51 and then I'm going to jump to 58. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. The bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. You don't have to look too hard to work out what the hidden manna is because Jesus already has compared himself to the manna. These guys were taking and trading the hidden manna, Jesus, and they were trading that for food offered to idols. What a terrible trade that is. Short-term gratification at the cost of eternity. But how often do we see people make exactly the same trade? Jesus, I worship you, I follow you, I adore you. Ooh, what's that? Sorry, Jesus. Ooh, I'm going to get into trouble here. Jesus, you have my life. You have my all. Actually, my girlfriend's just asked if I'll move in with her. So, uh, see ya. Trading the hidden manner 
for short-term gratification. The unbelieving world that rejects Christ will never know the joy of satisfaction of true faith in him. And why is it hidden? Because the world doesn't see it. The world doesn't see it. And the white stone with a new name. Well, I have read a lot of commentaries on this and not, not, no two of them are the same. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a lot of explanations as to what this could be. There's so many, I'm not going to do them. I'll just give you the one I think is most likely. Is that okay? You can look the others up if you want, but believe me, it will take some time. In the law courts at the time, there were white stones and black stones that were used to register the verdict of the jury. Black stones for condemnation, white stones for acquittal. Now I think this tracks entirely logically with this passage. The world may condemn you. You may even deserve to be condemned. But when you are in Jesus, he does not condemn you. When you repent, when you overcome, you gain the white stone of acquittal. This world has no place to judge you. Because Jesus has given you the white stone that says you are set free from your sin. You are saved. You are his. Let me tell you, you could have done some terrible things in your life. Gosh, it's very hard to look at people when you say that. <laughs> you could have done terrible things in your life. And you deserve to be condemned for them. Because they're awful. But when you come to Jesus and he gives you the white stone of acquittal, you cannot be condemned because you've been set free. I thank God for the cross. Where would I be without the cross of Christ? Where would I be without the white stone of acquittal? In the Old Testament, God gave people a new name to mark a new status for them. Abraham becomes Abraham. Jacob becomes Israel. Let me tell you, when we are faithful to God, we get a new status. We are his. We get a new inheritance. And we get a brand new life. There's other things this could be. It could be the stones and the high priests. Blessed plate, the stones that made the temple. The reality is, we don't know. But I think that one's the most likely one. But here's what we do know. Whatever it is, there is reward in heaven for faithfulness on earth. And frankly, I don't care what the metaphor is that gets us there. That is amazing. What can we learn from this letter? Well, I think it's very telling that when we read this particular letter, we get distracted by the throne of Satan and the white stones. Because when we do that, we miss the main point. And there's someone who wants us to miss the point. We miss the message. 
we focus on things that we're not really in danger of falling into and we get distracted by the things we should be really wary of. We see a picture here of a church stuck in compromise. A church that was allowing sin. Allowing pagan immorality and pagan ideas to creep on in. A church that didn't just turn a blind eye to sin, but actively encouraged it. We see a church that says it belongs to Jesus, but acts like it doesn't. Sex and idolatry. Two things that time and time again take root in churches. Destroy churches and take people away from God. Time and again, we can be so easily seduced by the things that this world offers us. See, in this church, their biggest problem wasn't persecution. Even though they lived in the city where Satan dwells, their biggest problem is they allowed the culture around them to seduce them and take them away from Jesus. I wonder this morning, how different are we from this church? We don't have to know who the Nicolaitans are to allow their teaching to creep in. We don't have to know who Balaam is to be tricked like people were tricked by Balaam. Balaam was subtle when he influenced Israel and let me tell you the devil is subtle as he influences the church. The world slowly creeps in. Slowly our services which are set aside to be holy become entertainment hmm? yeah. we need to realize when we talk about the compromised church we are talking about the institution that happens but we're talking about individuals compromising because after all the church is the people you can be getting the corporate right, but if we end up getting the individual wrong, we still end up in a bad place. Church, we have to flee compromise. We have to be different to the world. We have to be holy. And church, when we fail at this, and we will, we have to repent. We have to come to the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, I'm turning away from that compromise. The message from Jesus is repent or then I'll come and sort it. But if we repent, he forgives our sins. This morning I... Barbara, do you want to come back up? Is that okay? I... I When you're talking about sex and idolatry, you always feel like, well, if I do an appeal, everyone's going to think anyone who comes forward, it's the sex one. <laughs> I hope we're bigger than that. 
Because when we're talking about idolatry, we're talking about anything. Anything that takes the place of God. Anything where we take our value. Anything that takes our time, our energy, that should be going to God. Anything that takes our adoration and worship. Guys, it needs to go. And we need to repent. Can we stand together? I'm going to pray. And then I'm just going to do a very simple call. And please, everybody in the room, don't assume it's the sex one for people who come forward. Father God, we come before you, Lord, as people who know we get it wrong. But Lord, we don't want to be in the position of the compromised church or the compromised Christian. We don't want compromise in our lives, Lord. We want holiness. And Lord, I pray, Lord, shine your light, your Holy Spirit on our hearts right now. And show us, Lord, where we've compromised. Show us where idolatry has become an issue. Show us the things we need to turn away from. Lord, we do not want to be a compromised people. I don't want to be a compromised Christian. So Lord, I just ask you deal with us now. Deal with me now. And Lord, I thank you that you forgive our sin. Amen.